Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Sorry for interrupting your time of fellowship there with one another. Flying child. We're gathered here to worship. Uh, my name's John. I'm one of the elders here. Um, if you're visiting and you've never been in a church before, there'll be lots of things that are slightly different. Um, everything's got a reason behind it. We'll be very pleased to tell you what the reasons are if you're interested at the end of the service. It's good to praise the Lord and make music to your name almost high, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the melody of the lyre and the ten-string. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. Let's stand to sing. Uh, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord.
Please be seated and let's join together in prayer. Let us pray. O Lord our God, our loving, everlasting Father, in your great love you have called us to yourself and given us pardon and hope. But what a week many people here have had and what a week lies ahead. We ask for help, for blessing, for encouragement, for strength, for teaching. We ask that you will supply our needs. As we've just been singing, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Our spiritual strength is subject to decay. Even if we are full of blessing on a Sunday, we need to wait upon you Monday morning and Tuesday morning and all the way through the week for spiritual strength. And we wait in hope for the Lord this morning for strength to lift up our heads, to believe in Christ, to reaffirm in our own hearts the promises of the good news of Jesus, to remind one another that we are loved beyond our wildest imaginings, to remind one another that though we are forgiven in Christ, there are many, many days we'll need to say sorry and ask for forgiveness until we see him when we will be transformed into his likeness and, see, and seeing him as he is, never to sin again. So thank you, our Heavenly Father. Abide with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to stand again and sing um, Psalm 146, unaccompanied, and the tune is Stuttgart. Praise the Lord, my soul.
be seated. Now, from time to time, we affirm the faith that we believe along with 2,000 years of the, the church's history. So we're going to confess together in the words of what is called the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I'm going to lead us now in a confession of sin, and then after I say amen, I want us all to recite to one another the assurance of pardon, which will come up on the screen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we are unworthy to come into your presence. And we do not deserve any grace or mercy from you. And yet, O oh Lord, as we acknowledge our sins and offenses, so also do we acknowledge you to be a merciful God, a loving and favorable Father to all who turn to you. And so we humbly ask you, for the sake of Christ your Son, to show mercy to us and forgive us all our sins. Amen. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. Now, um, I'm going to ask Bernard to come and read to us our New Testament reading for today, and he will announce it. We're continuing our readings in uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This morning we're at Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're following in the church Bible, this can be found on page 1187, 1187, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins 
as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Um, notices. Uh, Sam, can you come up? There we go. Thank you, John. Hello. Um, I would like to invite you all to come to our congregational outing. Uh, it's on the 24th of August. You can see up there, between 1 to 5 p.m. at the Maddox Centre in St. Maddox. Uh, this is their community centre, and it's a great place. It's a new venue, and it's uh, accessible, and it has really good facilities. Um, we've got something, everyone. If you're coming along, if it's a nice day, hopefully we'll be having some games and activities out. They've got a big lawn at the back. If it's a little bit like today and a bit damp, they've got a really nice sports hall. Um, if you're preferring something more relaxed, they've got a lovely co- cafe lounge, and we'll be having an afternoon tea, and you don't have to run about outside. So there's something for everybody. And if you've got very wee ones, they've got a lovely little soft play and a play park, so it'll keep them happy as well. Um, after we've had a bit of time and a bit of games, we're hopefully going to have some food together, some like barbecue-style food, and have chance to chat and get to know each other. <coughs> um, to get there, it's just along the A90 towards Perth. If you need a lift or if you can offer a lift, we've got a sign-up sheet at the back, or please speak to myself afterwards. Um, for the afternoon tea, we'd really appreciate some donations of baking. If you could speak to Izzy or if you could sign up at the back, that would be really helpful. And can I encourage you all to come along? It's a free event. We've got up here some suggested donations just to cover the cost of borrowing the building and for the food. And if you could all come along, that would be brilliant. There's plenty of space for everybody. So thank you. Thank you, Sam. Can I um, make one other announcement before we say farewell to Christian? And that is um, Colin, who is leading the band and who is, uh, who is presenting today. He, he runs the various bands and musicians that we have, and he's asked me to ask if you know of anybody or if you're able to help, because we could do with some more people involved in the rota. So please speak to him or speak to me afterwards. If you are a musician and haven't been appreciated enough yet, Okay. Christian, where are you? Hey, come over up. Right, you speak into that one. So, most of you know this is Dr. Christian Walker. How long have you been here? Seven years, and you, you looked really young then, my goodness. Um, do many people, when you're in, in the wards, they say, are you really a doctor? Because you look far too young. I 
it's not usually when they see me, it's usually when I've spoken to them and tried to treat them. <laughs> you're, you're, I've seen you and I've seen the patients and Elizabeth will vouch for that because she's been one of your patients, that's not the truth at all. So tell us where you're going to be going uh, and what's going to happen for the next few years for yourself. So this is, this is the end of my time as a junior doctor in Nine Miles. Um, as of tomorrow, I'm moving back to Belfast to start GP training for the next three years, and then we'll see what happens after that. Great. Well, um, I'm going to... Keeping to tradition, we're going to give you a Bible. And um, in case you don't know what James is about, there's a wee commentary on James there for you as well. Um, you have endeared yourself to many people in this congregation. Um, you have served both the students and some of the other people of older age as well in this congregation. And we are pleased that you're going away to further your career. We're sorry that we won't see you every week, um, but you will come back and see us, and we will keep you in our prayers. Let's just pray together. Thank you. Sorry. Can I, can yeah. I just say as well, um, very briefly, um, the psalm we sang this morning speaks of the Lord's care for, for strangers, and that's very, very much been my experience in coming here over the last seven years. Um, I'm very thankful to all of you collectively for your love for me and for your prayers and for your example and your, your hospitality as well. And you will all remain firmly in my prayers as I leave. So thank you. Okay. Let's pray together. What will we say to you, Lord, for all the benefits you've given to us? Well, we say thanks. And we thank you for what we have received uh, from Christian in his time with us. And we thank you for um, his testimony to all that he has learned from this fellowship. And we pray that you will keep him safe. You will help him to stay close to you, that you will use him in the church that he seeks to serve in Northern Ireland, and that you will okay, continue to, through him, be a blessing both in his work and training as a GP and also in all that he does for the local fellowship. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Okay. Yes, it's after all of that, it's time for the children, and I'm asking Sinclair if you'll come and speak. Okay, boys and girls, come and meet me at the front of the church. Good. Quick, quick, but don't fall. Now. You're multiplying. I want you, if you, can, if you can do this, to look at me very carefully, okay? Look at me very carefully, because I am wearing something today I do not usually wear on Sundays to church. So, you want to look me up and down? Shoes? No, same old shoes, socks, trousers. Can anyone see something I do not usually wear? A belt, that's good, but I, I need a belt <laughs> because I'm a boy. You come often to church with a microphone. Well, that's good. I don't come to church with a microphone. But if I'm speaking to the boys and girls, somebody comes and sticks it on my ear because we do not believe in this church that if God meant you to have a microphone, 
he would have put it on your ear when you were born, do we? So, excellent. How many of you can see I am wearing a badge today? How many of you have got badges? Like Blue Peter badges? Or any kind of badge? Do you ever wear a badge? Why would you wear a badge? It tells people something, doesn't it? Now, my badge, I don't know if you can, you probably can't see it. I've got two of them. I made this one earlier. But it's okay, that's just a bad old joke. You see what it is? Can you see? You might not be able to read the writing, but you can maybe see the picture that's on it. Can you see what it is? Excellent. It is a church. And it is the church of which I, well, I used to belong to this church. It's called First Presbyterian Church. And it says on the bottom here, which I already knew, it's in Columbia, South Carolina. And everybody in the church I belong to in Columbia, South Carolina, this church called First Presbyterian Church. Now, we just assume we are the First Presbyterian Church here in St. Peter's, but this was actually the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Everybody in the church had one of these badges. And just as I'm doing today, they would stick it there. And, of course, what happens when you wear a badge? People say, what do people say? Well, you need to start wearing badges, and then you'll find out people usually say, what is that badge for? They should actually say, for what is that badge? But they always say, what is that badge for? And then you're able to tell them. And in our church, when people ask that question, the answer would be, this is the church that I belong to, and I wear this badge because I want people to know I love my church. Now, because I don't usually wear that, I had to find it. And when I found it, it reminded me of a wonderful verse in the Old Testament that tells us that God has a kind of badge. Christian, who was just here working in the hospital, I don't know if you've ever been in a hospital, sometimes you see the doctors going around and they've written something on their hands to remind them of something. And Isaiah chapter 49 verse 16 tells us that God wears a badge on His hand. Not only on His hand, but He's actually engraved the badge right into His hand. Now, we know God doesn't have our kinds of hands, but Isaiah chapter 49 verse 16 says, God has engraved right onto the palm of His hand so that He will never, ever, ever forget, so that if you ever asked Him, Father, what is that badge on your hand? Isaiah 49 verse 16 says, He has 
engraved, he has written right onto the palm of his hands our names, because he never, ever, ever wants to forget us because he loves us so much. So, if you were to see God opening his hand and you looked really closely, like I guess the writing would be even smaller than this because there are so many of us written onto the palm of God's hands, you would find your name too if you trust and love him. Isn't that great? That's a badge worth knowing about. Well, let's thank him for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not ashamed to wear our names on the palm of your hand and that you have written them there forever. And we pray as you hold on to us because we are your children and we trust you that we will be strengthened and helped always to remember how much you love us and that you will never forget us. And we thank you in our Savior's name. Amen. Okay, see you later on, and have a good Sunday school. Yeah, after, um, we're going to stand again and sing Awake, Awake, Ozion, after which the children and young people will leave for their activities, if, uh, and during which we will take up the offering as well. Thank you for reminding me. Um, yeah. I, did I say Christian Walker? Christian Palmer. Oh. What's my name again? It's just, I never mind. Yeah, okay. yeah, John Ferguson um, is no relation, uh, physically speaking, to Sinclair Ferguson. We just happen to share the same name, but we are brothers in the Lord. Right, got that one out. Um, thank you. Let's stand again to sing Awake, Awake, O Zion.
Please be seated. And uh, after the children have left, I'm inviting David Miller to come and lead us, one of our elders, to lead us in the pastoral prayer for the congregation. Thank you, David. Let's all pray. Dear Lord, our God, we have come to worship you with all of our hearts because you are worthy. We marvel that you want us to call you our Heavenly Father, that you, the King of kings, Lord of lords, maker of heaven and earth, should love us so much and want us to be reconciled to you that you came among us as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to restore the bond we had before sin entered our world. We praise you that you came to set the prisoners free, those bound in the chains of sin, driven by futile desires of the body and wrapped up in selfishness. You brought light and freedom to those in darkness when our Savior died on that Roman cross. We praise you that we have a living Savior who pleads for us at your right hand. We know we are freed, but we confess that we sometimes fall back into sin. We say and do things that we know we should not. We hurt others. We hurt you and we hurt ourselves. In doing so, we separate ourselves from the loving fellowship we have in you. Forgive us and draw us so close to yourself that our only desire will be to please and honor you. Thank you for the Bible, your word given to men of old whom you inspired to write, Thank you that your word guides us, reassures us, challenges us, comforts us, and warns us. You are a great God, and we want to be led by you. Around us we see a changing world, often in more open rebellion against you and your laws. Teach us to have our anchor firmly held in you in the storms of life, grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. Keep us from being squeezed into the world's mold and transform our minds to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you that you are at work in the hearts and lives of your people. Thank you for children's Christian camps over the summer, for those that are past and for those camps still happening, that young lives will be committed to you. Bless those who are involved in the running of these camps. Encourage them, we pray. Watch over the outreach work in Charleston. Give wisdom to 
Andrew and Kyrene and other members of the team as they work for you there. May they see lives transformed and won for you. Guide the proposals of the 20 schemes, we pray. We ask for guidance as we look for a new pastor for this congregation. Lead us to a man who will be unwavering in true interpretation of the Bible, whose love of you will inspire many to take up their cross and follow you. Be at work in the man of your choosing by preparing him for the task even now. We remember with thankfulness and gratitude the work of David and Annabel in this church over many years, and we pray for them in their new roles in Australia. May they know the blessing of your Holy Spirit in their lives as they serve you there. We bring before you tenderly those in our congregation who carry heavy burdens, burdens of grief for loved ones, burdens of uncertainty over health, burdens of uncertainty in relationships, money worries, poor sleep patterns, depression, heaviness of heart, regrets, hurts from those who have turned against us. Let none of us be bitter, but let us turn our eyes to you, Lord, the great physician. You alone can bring comfort and healing to our souls. We are each of us in your hands, and that is where we want to be. Bless the preaching of your word today in our service and our brother Sinclair as he delivers it to us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Sheena um, will come and we will read our Old Testament reading, um, Psalm 127. Psalm 127, it's on page 64 of the Church Bible. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to stand again and sing uh, that psalm, um, after which uh, Sinker will come and preach.
Now we're turning this morning to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 3, and if you're using one of the church Bibles, I think you'll find that on page 967, Matthew's gospel chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." Most Christians, not all, but most Christians uh, from time to time during the course of the year celebrate major moments in the life of the Lord Jesus. Most Christians uh, remember Christmas and celebrate the birth of the Savior. And probably more Christians remember Easter and celebrate His death on the cross for us and His glorious resurrection. And then some of us, if we can remember, 
may celebrate the ascension of Jesus and the way in which He returned to the right hand of the Father. And again, if we can remember that it's Pentecost Sunday, we may also remember the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the inauguration of the last days, the new age of the gospel. And these really are four critical points in the life, the ministry, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's appropriate that we return to reflect on them again and again. They are the high moments, the saving moments in our lives. But they're not the only critical moments in the ministry of Jesus. And I want us, uh, God willing, during the course of the Sundays of this month to look at four other critical moments, not so major perhaps as these four, but nevertheless during the three years of His ministry, uh, very significant moments that have a great deal to teach us about Him, about His calling, have a great deal to teach us about how it is and what it is He has come to do in our lives. It so happens that uh, each of these four moments is very specifically geographically located. Uh, You could at least go roughly to where they take place, and perhaps some well-paid guide would say that this was exactly where they took place. And so, we're going to think about scenes in the life of the Savior. And uh, just as a roadmap that will help you to, uh, in advance, know what these scenes are. The first takes place at a river, the second in a wilderness, the third on a mountain, and the fourth in a garden. And the first of these, the scene at the river, is this scene that Matthew describes here in Matthew chapter 3 where very remarkable things were happening at the River Jordan. Actually, if you know much about or have read much about the great awakenings and revivals in the 18th and 19th century, long before there was ease of communication, what uh, Matthew describes here will remind you of those scenes when by some kind of bush telegraph people seemed to hear that something was happening, that God had come and visited His people. And hundreds, thousands of people would gather to specific locations to hear men who otherwise had been unknown to them uh, preach the Word of God and preach the gospel. And that, of course, was exactly what was happening here. Uh, The awakening is described here in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 5, Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan were going out to John the baptizer, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And it's in that context that Jesus appears and asks to be baptized. And most of us are familiar with this story, familiar maybe even from Sunday school days. But clearly, there is something about what took place here 
that was a huge puzzle to John the Baptizer. And as far as we know, he may have been still puzzling about it when he was so cruelly martyred by Herod. Because you remember, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to to ask him to explain who he really was. Was he the Messiah about whom John had here been preaching? Or at the end of his life, should John actually be looking for someone else? And Matthew tells this story in a way that's kind of reminiscent of what some of you can do on your computers and what you often see on television. Uh, three pieces of a, of a picture that individually don't seem to make a lot of sense coming together. And when you see those three bits of the puzzle coming together, you, you look at the whole picture and, and you're able to say, oh, oh, that's what it is. Those of you who are devotees of question of sport, at least in the ancient days, there always used to be one of those puzzles where you would get part of the picture to guess the whole. And then, of course, eventually, if all the parts were needed, everybody watching instantaneously would say, oh, that's who he is. And the three pieces of this puzzle here are all related to reactions to Jesus' baptism. And I want us to look at each one briefly this morning. First of all, there is the reaction of John the Baptist. John the baptizer actually might be a better way of describing him. And this is the moment for which the whole of John's life has been a preparation John's gospel actually tells us that John understood that, yes, he was preaching this this baptism for the repentance of sinners, but actually enshrined within this calling God had given him was a conviction he was given, a little like the conviction of Simeon at the beginning of Jesus' life, a conviction he had been given that it was as he was baptizing in this way that the Messiah would appear. And this, of course, was the reason for the urgency of his message. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming to judge the world and to cleanse sin. The way in which John is introduced here reminds us of the prophecy that was given in in what is the last book in, in our Protestant Bibles, the prophecy of Malachi, that uh, the day of the Lord would be a great and terrible day. Those of you who love Handel's Messiah, who can endure the day of His coming? And John speaks about this. The the Messiah is near. He says he is coming with his winnowing fork in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat. He'll burn the chaff because when he comes, I am baptizing with water. But when he comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is just a symbol of cleansing, but when He comes, 
there will be this fiery cleansing. And you can sense from the narrative that uh, God was in His preaching, and uh, that there were no coughs during these sermons. There was no shifting of the seats waiting for the sermon to end. There was that awesome sense of the presence of God that the people felt, as it were, the the nearness of God's judgment, and they were flocking to the River Jordan. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees were flocking to the River Jordan because the Messiah was about to come. This was, this was His message, the kingdom is near, which meant the King is coming, the Messiah is coming. And then one day during these weeks, uh, the Lord Jesus appears. The one John was expecting, the one John was preaching, the Messiah, the King. And he says to John, John, baptize me. And you can understand why this is a, this is a mystery to John. It's, it's, he cannot get his head around this because it, is, it seems so contrary to everything he's been preaching. The Messiah will come. He will baptize with the reality of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit will consume sinfulness, and the chaff will be burnt away. My baptism has been warning people that when the Messiah comes, there is danger, there is judgment for their sins. Wash those sins away. He's beseeching people, repent and have your sins washed away in the Jordan. That's why I'm baptizing here, so that you can see and even feel symbolically what your greatest need is for your sins to be washed away. And so, it's not at all difficult for us to understand that when Jesus comes and says to him, baptize me, there's a problem for John. Indeed, it's such a problem, we are told, that he, he remonstrates with Jesus. No, Jesus, he says, verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, you can almost imagine him, as it were, standing on the river Jordan and saying, you're not, no, not you. I'm not fit to carry your sandals. I shouldn't be baptizing you. I'm the sinner who needs you to baptize me, to save me from the future judgment. And even later on, as Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 11, as I said, when, when John is in prison and doubtless in low spirits, he's still puzzling this over. And so, in his very last days, he sends his his friends, his disciples to Jesus and say, please, Jesus, tell me if you're really the Messiah. No, I cannot, I can't take it in. And you remember what Jesus says to him essentially. He says, look, John, the blind are being given sight, the lame are able to walk. You haven't fully understood 
what it means for the Messiah to come. I think we can put it this way, that John, who is the the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, is standing, as it were, on the on the high ground of the Old Testament, and he's, he's looking to this mountain that is, that is appearing in the future. And as he, as he looks to the mountain peak, all he sees is one summit, because he hasn't climbed the mountain yet. He hasn't had the sufficient understanding yet to see that as he climbs the mountain, there are actually two peaks, and they're separated from one another. And that what's happening now is the first peak, which is why Jesus says to John, John, baptize me for the moment. Do this now. Yes, the second peak will one day appear. There will be judgment. There will be the burning of the chaff. But in between now and then, I've come for a different reason. And as I say, it seems to me that John continued to puzzle over this, and we can appreciate why that is. We've got the whole story, the whole of the New Testament. We understand the Old Testament even better than John the Baptist could have understood the Old Testament. But this is an important part of the picture that John cannot understand why the king who has come, who is the judge of all the earth, who will judge sinners, asks himself to be baptized. But now as you read on, the, the second part of the picture comes into view. And just as we're told about the reaction of the baptizer, we're also told about the reaction, or at least the response, of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him. That's always language about divine revelation. The heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. In other words, the Spirit of God, who is, of course, invisible, took on visibility, and the appearance of His coming. Remember the flames of fire on the day of Pentecost? Here, at the baptism of Jesus, the the visible expression of His coming appears in the form of a dove, and He comes to rest on Jesus. Of course, this is Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit for His ministry. But obviously, Matthew thinks it's important to tell us that the the visible form the Spirit took was the form of a dove. And that that has a resonance in our minds, doesn't it? These these symbols do not mean anything. They're not given to us so that we make up each one of us what they might mean. They're given to us because the clues to their meaning are already embedded in the Scriptures. 
And the clues to the meaning of this event, the Spirit coming as Jesus is there coming out of the water, is fairly obviously a back reference to the flood, and then to the flood receding. And when God had finished His judgment on His original creation, leaving only one small family circle, you remember eventually Noah sends out uh, a dove, comes back with a twig, sends out the dove again, and the dove does not return as the sign that the new creation is now in place. And it's, it's very clearly part of the structure of the book of Genesis, isn't it? In, in the first creation, the Spirit comes and hovers over the waters, and out of that hovering comes the whole of the created order. And then when God, as it were, destroys that first creation with the flood because of its sinfulness, its rebellion, He brings into being a new creation and the symbol that that new creation has arrived, that the waters have receded, is the dove finds a place to rest. And if John had been able to see it, if John had been able to see it, I, I think he would have understood that whatever is a mystery to me here, the coming of the presence of the Spirit of God in the form of a dove on the Messiah is it's a sign of what He's come into the world to do. Um, and, and the New Testament picks this up, doesn't it? What did the Lord Jesus come into the world to do? He came into the world to bring about a new creation, to restore us to a true humanity, a true manhood, and a true womanhood, to bring about this, this new order of reality, this new world into which by this same Holy Spirit we are, we are brought. So that you remember, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if the, if the Holy Spirit brings anyone into fellowship, saving fellowship, union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, it's, it's new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And I think, personally, it's important for us to understand that I'm pretty sure Paul did not mean that to be translated. If any individual is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. But if any of us are in Christ, belong to Christ, then new creation. That's what he says literally. If any, in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And, and many of us can, can, uh, can even put a day uh, and, and describe ex the kind of experience that that was for us. Remember Anna Laetitia Waring's hymn, uh, Loved with Everlasting Love? Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. What did she mean? She meant that when, you, when you're brought into this new creation, this new community, in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
then you see everything differently. You see everything related to the Creator and the Savior. So, if, John, if John's response was to be puzzled as to why Jesus needed to be baptized, the Spirit's response to Jesus' baptism was to help us to understand what He was being baptized to do, to bring in a new creation. And you know, that is, that's good news, isn't it? Um, it, it, is, it is good news in this, this world um, that, that seems to be falling apart, in which our brightest and best are not able to solve uh, the problems of our world. And our brightest and best have, have often totally contradictory views of what needs to be done to solve the problems of this world. Uh, what we need is a, is a new creation. And when we think about that individually, when we think about our past, what, what would you give for a new creation? What would you give to be able to say the old is now gone, something new has begun? Yes, there is a long way to go, but, but you're, in, you're in the new order of things. You're a member of the new creation. So, the first picture that slides in is the puzzled response of John the baptizer. The, the second part of the picture that slides in is the significance of the coming of the Spirit in the form of a dove. And then the third part of the picture that slides in right at the end of the passage in verse 17 Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, there's the response of the baptizer, there's the coming of the Spirit in the form of a dove, and then, as it were, the final explanation comes from the voice of the heavenly Father. And again, these words are not just plucked out of thin air so that we sit round and say, I wonder, I wonder what these words mean. God is quoting Himself here, isn't He? And He's quoting Himself from two very significant places. One of them is the second psalm, which is about the Messianic King. And remember how it ends, that the Messianic King is going to be the judge of all the earth, the Son of God, and so, the psalmist has this John the Baptizer-like urgency in his speech to people. So, he says, kiss the Son, that is, yield to the Son before it's too late. I had a very funny experience during the week. I was trying to get from Stonehaven to Carnoustie and Dorothy had taken me to the station. I was on the wrong side. I'd already bought my ticket. I didn't realize that the place I got my ticket was this side of the, the station, the Aberdeen side, and I wanted the, the Carnoustie side, and I ran across. The man said the ticket placed over the other side. I said, could you not get the ticket? There was a minute to go, and the train was pulling in, and he tried, and he put in the wrong number, and then he put in the right number, gave me the ticket. I ran onto the platform. The station was still standing. The train was still standing. 
but the, the man who runs the train had his back to me, and uh, he just got on, and he did whatever they do to lock the doors, and I'm, my finger is on the button, and there's a, there's a man sitting there looking at me. I don't think I've ever seen so much empathy in the eyes of a man sitting in a train as I, as I pushed the button, and the doors didn't open, and the train pulled away, and I saw Dorothy's back going towards the car, and I'm standing there, Dorothy, Dorothy, I'm not shouting loud enough, so Dorothy, and you know, then I thought, what if Dorothy wasn't there and that was the last train? Well, that's, uh, that's the feeling there was. John was saying, the last train is about to leave. Uh, don't miss it. Because judgment is coming. And judgment is coming. And it's enshrined in these words of the Father. This is His Son. This is the Messianic King. Kiss the Son before it's too late. But there's also language here that comes from Isaiah 42. And those of you who know and love Isaiah that we studied a few years ago, remember that Isaiah 42 is the first of a series of, of poems or songs that introduce this figure, the servant of the Lord, who eventually in Isaiah 52 and 53 becomes clearly a picture of the Lord Jesus. And the, the New Testament often quotes from these four songs of the servant in Isaiah, and the first of them introduces who he is. He is the, the beloved one of the Father. And that's what the Father is saying here, saying here to his Son and to any who will hear, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased and whom my soul delights. And it's just a little hint to help us understand the, the message that John couldn't completely grasp because he saw one mountain peak and didn't realize there were two mountain peaks, that the first mountain peak was not the coming of the Savior to be the judge, but the coming of the Savior to be the Savior. And it was because of that that he says to John, John, I know you don't understand but for the moment, in the present time, baptize me. And you understand why John is so reluctant to baptize him, because, because this baptism is a symbol. John knows that, that, that you don't get your sins forgiven by Jordan water. You get your sins forgiven by turning to God who in His mercy and grace might forgive you before it's too late. And so you understand why John is saying, I can't… However he did it, I can't pour this dirty water over you, Jesus. Jesus, don't you see that this water of the river Jordan is polluted by the sins of those who have confessed their sins as the water is poured over them. Symbolically, it is polluted by their sin. How can I possibly take that sin-polluted water and pour it over you? 
But that, of course, is the point, isn't it? Because what Jesus has come for here, Jesus has come to be baptized into our sin in order that we might be baptized into His righteousness. This is a picture of precisely what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, isn't it? That Jesus came into the world in order to be made sin for us, our sin, in order that we might be made in Him through faith, the righteousness of God. Now, there's a lot more in the… there's a lot more depth in the in the baptism of Jesus than this, but there's not any more time on the clock. And so, let's, let's be satisfied with this, that we understand what John the Baptist didn't understand, and that from this point onwards, as Jesus says, Luke 12, He says, I've still got a baptism to be baptized with, and I'm, I'm held in until that baptism is fulfilled. In other words, this baptism for him was just a symbol of his final baptism under the judgment of God bearing our sins on the cross of Calvary. And it's so fascinating to me that the Apostle Paul uses exactly the same verb that's used in Luke 12:50 when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are constrained we who have been baptized, we have had the symbol. If we understand what that symbol is, we, we are constrained, held in by the same love of Jesus Christ that held Him in to the cross. The love of Christ constrains us because we understand that He died for us all and we died therefore in Him that those who live should no longer live for ourselves, but live for Him who died for us and was raised again. Friends, if we've been baptized, that's what the symbol called us to, because that's why Jesus was baptized, that we might be part of this new creation in which we no longer live for ourselves but entirely for Him. That's the meaning of the event at the river. Let's give thanks for it. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You for that amazing day when You came, sinless, righteous, holy, to have poured over You the symbol of our sin and unrighteousness and unholiness. And we pray as by Your Holy Spirit You bring us into this new creation by Your grace that henceforth we may no longer live for ourselves, but constrained by Your love, live for Your glory. And this we pray in Your name. Amen. Well, we've uh, responded in prayer. Let's now respond in praise. Um, we'll stand again to sing, Out of my darkness, Jesus, I come. Please remain standing um, for the benediction afterwards.
to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. <laughs> 